This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are happy to report at the onset that, quoting the Sacramento Bee, UC Davis students gave their campus newspaper a new life. Last Friday, voting to tax themselves nearly $300,000 a year to support the operations of the California Aggie indefinitely. When we get a chance later in this segment, we will talk to Aggie Editor-in-Chief Elizabeth Orpina about this happy news. We're also going to try and speak with fellow KDVSer Gary B. Good. I think we're going to postpone our chat with the local cartoonist Eric DeCetis till next week's program. Eric is going to talk to us about uh, one of his cartoon brethren, Maury Turner. And talking about We Pals would be especially appropriate for Black History Month, being that uh, the strip was all about racial harmony. I think that item will, uh, will wait a week, along with our discussion of the slave trade and how it fits into the whole world trade of sugar that went back a couple centuries. Uh, it's a worthy topic, and we're not going to do it today, but we will make a point to get to it in the next week or two. So let us commence today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 27th of February. So on February 27th in 1782, the British House of Commons voted to end the war with the United States, which seems to make the British House of Commons a lot smarter than our current House of Representatives in America, or for that matter, our nincompoop president who talks about ending the war in Afghanistan at the end of next year, 2014, even though we elected him in November of 2008 on a platform of ending these Asian conflicts. At any rate, speaking of the slave trade, on February 27th in 1788, Massachusetts declared the American slave trade illegal after a group of free blacks were kidnapped and taken to the island of Martinique as slaves. It was on this date in 1932 in England at Cambridge University that physicist James Chadwick discovered the neutron, for which he later won a Nobel Prize. You know, we did a commentary on that very fact that aired on Capital Public Radio some years back. We'll have to dust that off and uh, put it in our website. February 27th in 1933, an arson fire gutted Germany's historic parliamentary building, the Reichstag. It was an incident the Nazis conveniently blamed on the communists and paved the way for Adolf Hitler's seizing dictatorial powers. Seems pretty clear in retrospect the Nazis themselves burned down the Reichstag to serve their political purposes. On this date in 1991, with allegedly all objectives met in the Gulf War against Iraq, U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush announced a ceasefire would take effect just 100 hours after the ground war had begun. This was a revelatory moment for this correspondent who had sort of thought that first Gulf War did make a certain amount of sense. But I realized when Bush 41 canceled the war, leaving Saddam Hussein in power, that it just meant we would have a future Iraq war, which, of course, we did. We'll have more to say about the kind of people that make those decisions a little bit later in the show. Such things are seldom made by a president himself. Anyway, on February 27th in 1994, and it's hard to believe this was just 20 years ago, astronomer Alexander Waltzen of Pennsylvania State University confirmed the existence of two planets orbiting a star 1,300 light-years from Earth. This marked the first time in history 
that planets had been discovered outside of our own solar system. Now, thanks to the Kepler spacecraft and, uh, and the work of astronomers around the world, the total is now stands at something like 2,000. It's amazing to realize that just 20 years ago, nobody could say for sure that there were any planets anyplace else in the, uh, in the universe. They held out the possibility that our solar system may be an anomaly, but of course, we know better now. Many people think the universe contains more planets than it does stars, and I, I suspect they're right. And although it isn't something that has an anniversary today, per se, 50 years ago this week, the sports world was shaken by a, a little item that I think is worthy of mention, which was the defeat of heavyweight champion Sonny Liston in a seventh-round technical knockout by a young 22-year-old Cassius Clay. Clay had a predicted victory, boasting that he would float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Two weeks later, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and cut a figure likes of which I don't think we may ever see again. And I think we'll uh, use Muhammad Ali for our quote of the day. And in this, we have an embarrassment of riches to choose from. Said Ali, if you even dream of beating me, you'd better wake up and apologize. And dovetailing with that is our quote slash quip of the week from Sophia Loren, who once said, Getting ahead in a difficult profession requires avid faith in yourself. That is why some people with mediocre talent, but with great inner drive, go much further than people with vastly superior talent. All right, we talked about uh, the election here uh, at UC Davis regarding the future of the Aggie and its happy results. And coming back to the program to talk about that is the Aggie Editor-in-Chief, Elizabeth Orpina. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Well, looking at the results here, Elizabeth, it looks like 26,000 undergraduates were eligible. You needed to get 20%. You got 27%. And it looks like you won with a landslide, 73% voting in favor of supporting the Aggie. Correct. That means you've got you guys are now out of the woods. No, um, this is actually just like a formal recommendation to the vice oh. chancellor, and then the vice chancellor can make a formal recommendation to the chancellor. Student affairs was at the elections results, and so they got to see that it passed, and then they basically told us that it would go straight through student affairs because they already know what kind of language they wanted to okay. change, um, and they would just kind of suggest that to the chancellor, and they said by the end of this week we would know if it's official or not. So could say he could actually veto the entire thing at the end of this week, or she could make changes okay. to the language without even telling me. I would hope that she would include me in the conversation because I'm the author of the bill, right. and I'm willing to make some concessions to the bill. However, she's the chancellor, and like she has ultimate authority. Wow, so we're really not out of the woods quite yet. Uh, but but you, I imagine you suspect that any changes will be fairly minor? I mean, isn't that the hope? I think the changes aren't going to be unexpected. So through the campaign, we've kind of noticed a lot of the things that people on the No campaign have been pointing out. And the thing is, we were actually willing to make some of those changes. It's just due to ASUCD bylaws and the Constitution, we could not make changes that close to the election. So... When Student Affairs came to the Senate a week before elections demanding changes, it was either Senate made changes and it became void, or we ignore Student Affairs. What we did was just ignore Student Affairs and then see what would happen. But then they learned that the Chancellor could actually make those changes after it passes, so we all just waited to see if the students voted in favor. Well, I guess the position we're going to take here is that no news will be good news, and then if we're not talking about this again in a week or two, everything is, is going well. Exactly. 
the, the thrust of this is you guys are not dependent upon ad revenues at this point. You've got a little extra cash to work with, and that should allow a lot of changes. Correct. We'll still have ad revenue, um, but part of the fee also goes toward the loss of certain ad revenue. But um, we'll still be having an advertising department and a business department, except a lot of the fees will be going to maintaining and growing the business side and the editorial side of the paper. When we talked a couple of weeks ago, you said that uh, this didn't pass, it would be down to a skeleton crew, but I guess at this point you'll be able to even hire more people, perhaps? And Well, we're at a skeleton crew right oh. now, um, but the fee will allow us to add professional staff members that could basically stabilize the Aggie and work with what we have, and then I'd be able to create more paid positions on staff. Most of the people on staff who aren't getting paid right now would hopefully get compensated by next year. All right. The California Aggie is without a doubt a great resource. We rely upon it on this program uh, on a regular basis. So uh, we take our hat off to you and hope for the best. Thank you so much. That was the California Aggies editor-in-chief, Elizabeth Orpina. We look forward to speaking with her again in the future. Our joke of the day is as follows. A man, his wife, and his mother-in-law went on a vacation to the Holy Land. While they were there, the mother-in-law passed away. The undertaker told them, Well, you can have her shipped home for $5,000, or you can bury her right here in the Holy Land for just $200. The man thinks about it and says, Yeah, I'd like to have her shipped home. The surprised undertaker asks, Why would you spend $5,000 to ship your mother-in-law home when it would be wonderful to be buried right here and spend only 200 man replies, Listen, about 2,000 years ago, a guy died here, got buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take the chance. Our anecdote of the day comes from the Book of the Dumb, which noted that there were some significant errata on maps featured in the July 2003 edition of the Canadian Tourism Commission. It's a semi-annual magazine. And in the 2003 edition, the following errors were observed. The newest territory, Nunavut, was spelled Nunavut. The province of Newfoundland and Labrador was simply labeled Newfoundland. Halifax, the capital of Nova Scotia, was missing. The province of Prince Edward Island was missing. And the entire Yukon Territory was missing. The Book of the Dumb, citing the CBC News, said, You'd think the Canadian Tourism Commission would know its own country. And they note, to be fair, perhaps it does. But it appears it simply doesn't hire people that do. Both the maps and the magazine they're in, Pure Canada, are put together by voters based, you guessed it, in the U.S. of A. And our statistic of the day is as follows. In a follow-up poll done by the Pew organization in December of last year, it was discovered that the share of Republicans here in America who believe that humans evolved fell from 54% as recently as 2009 to just 43% last year. It should be noted that in this same poll, 48% of self-identified Republicans told Pew they believed humans, quote, existed in their present form since the beginning of time, end quote. Can it come then as any surprise that Republicans are having such a hard time with global warming? I have a Republican relative who confidently predicted to me back in 2007, I think it was, perhaps 2008, that by the year 2012, this whole global warming hoax was going to be seen for what it was. What can I say? He's been proven dead right. Because I think it's been pretty well established right now, this whole global warming idea is a vast conspiracy of atmospheric and 
climate scientists to get their hands on some of that research money, because without a doubt, there are literally tens of thousands of dollars at stake here. In fact, let me quote from a piece I've been hanging on to from the New York Times uh, International Edition that I got in my trip to the Caribbean, piece by Michael E. Mann, professor of meteorology at Penn State University, and also the author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. In his piece for the Times, Mann wrote, The overwhelming consensus among climate scientists is that human-caused climate change is happening, yet a fringe minority of our populace clings to an irrational rejection of well-established science. This virulent strain of anti-science infects the halls of Congress, the pages of leading newspapers, and what we see on TV, leading to the appearance of a debate where none should exist. The thrust of the piece was that scientists must occasionally shout out about things. Said man, if scientists choose not to engage in the public debate, we leave a vacuum that will be filled by those whose agenda is one of short-term self-interest. In fact, it would be an abrogation of our responsibility to society if we remain quiet in the face of such a grave threat. He notes the Department of Homeland Security has urged citizens to report anything dangerous they witness, saying, if you see something, say something. Said man, we scientists are citizens too, and in climate change, we can see a clear and present danger. Well, we'll keep on that one, sadly. At the top of the program, we alluded to references about how things really get done, and I just want to plug a fantastic book I'm reading right now, which I want to report on in the weeks to come. Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas's The Wise Men, Six Friends and the World They Made. This book was written back in 1986, but it is uh, as relevant today as ever. Exposes some of our history that we really should know more about. This book got rave reviews when I first stumbled upon it on Amazon, and uh, this is an example of one of the one of the few one of the rare things that comes along in life that uh, appears to be all it's cracked up to be. Uh, a marvelous book, focusing primarily on six individuals that uh, were incredibly influential in foreign policy: Avril Harriman, Robert Lovett, John McCloy, Dean Acheson, Chip Bolin, and George Kennan. When I'm done with it, we're going to talk about it. Meanwhile, a simpler piece I'd recommend for your reading list, my dear listener, is uh, something titled Anatomy of the Deep State, an essay by Mike Lofgren. I heard Mr. Lofgren being interviewed by Bill Moyers on his radio program a few days ago and thought, uh, this sounds like a must-read. So I do recommend that you look it up on the Internet. To quote briefly from the piece, said Mike Lofgren, The deep state does not consist of the entire government. It is a hybrid of national security and law enforcement agencies, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Justice Department. I also include the Department of the Treasury because of its jurisdiction over financial flows. Also, its organic symbiosis with Wall Street. All these agencies are coordinated by the Executive Office of the President via the National Security Council. Certain key areas of the judiciary belong to the deep state, such as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts, FISA courts, whose actions are mysterious even to most members of Congress. Also included are a handful of vital federal trial courts, such as the Eastern District of Virginia and the Southern District of Manhattan. The final component, possibly last in precedence among the formal branches of government, is a kind of rump Congress consisting of the congressional leadership and some, but not all, of the members of the Defense and Intelligence Committees. 
noted Mike Lofgren, this is the more shadowy, more indefinable government we have that is not explained in Civics 101 or observable to tourists at the White House or Capitol. Lofgren refers to our visible government as traditional Washington partisan politics, the tip of the iceberg that a public watching C-SPAN sees daily and which is theoretically controllable via elections. But the subsurface part of the iceberg he calls the deep state, which operates according to its own compass heading regardless of who is formally in power. We'll have more to say about that in future programs. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for justice, perhaps for just desserts, with the news that ex-Congressman Representative Mel Reynolds, who resigned in 1995 after being convicted of statutory rape, has been arrested in Harare, Zimbabwe this week on pornography charges. Yes, apparently the Illinois Democrat was picked up in his Harare hotel room where he'd been running up a bill of $24,000 and uh, allegedly taking nude photos and videos of Zimbabwean models and prostitutes. Reynolds said he was outraged at his treatment, saying he'd brought investors to Zimbabwe and had lobbied for sanctions to be lifted. It should be noted that while in prison in the U.S. for having sex with an underage campaign worker, Reynolds was also convicted of bank fraud. In one of his last acts as president, Bill Clinton commuted his sentence back in 2001. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a few weeks back for holding hands, or perhaps the sense of humor of certain Chinese, with the news that a group of Shanghai singles decided to spoil Valentine's Day for couples by buying up every odd-numbered seat at a showing of Beijing Love Story. Said the prank's organizer, Sorry, you'll have to sit separately. Absence makes the heart go fonder. Pretty hilarious stuff, wouldn't you say? What jerks. And it was an ugly week last week for democracy, with the news that the Nicaraguan Constitution has officially been changed to allow President Daniel Ortega to run for re-election as many times as he wants. The amendments, pushed through by the ruling Sandinista Party last month, but not official until this, eliminated term limits and allowed a candidate to be elected president with a plurality of votes instead of a majority. The opposition and civic and business groups in Nicaragua say that changes should have been put out to a popular referendum instead of a simple vote in parliament. Daniel Ortega, age 68, what a surprise, plans to run for a fourth five-year term in 2016. And in a both bad and ugly week for human rights, it was revealed last week that the North Korean regime is starving and torturing its people on a gruesome scale. UN investigators say the government should be tried for crimes against humanity. This uh, comes out of a damning report released last week, which was based on interviews with hundreds of defectors, describing a police state of total indoctrination where citizens are denied food, raped, beaten, and even summarily executed for minor infractions. By the way, it took them a year of investigating to come up with this report. Australian Judge Michael Kirby, who led the investigation, said that at the end of the Second World War, so many people said, if only we had known. Well, now the international community does know. There will be no excusing a failure of action. Of course, it's hard to speculate on what action uh, Judge Kirby's referring to. But if sending Dennis Rodman back is one of his ideas, we're for it. 
provided they keep him. And speaking of bad governments that should be gotten rid of, uh, a lot of bad news coming out of Syria. There are now millions of people in refugee camps as uh, the fighting goes on between uh, the regime of President Bashar al-Assad and the rebels. Keep in mind this is something that we have been uh, working behind the scenes to bring about for some years. I have to say our main hope here is that it just doesn't drag on with endless years of, uh, of stalemate and bloodshed. All right, I don't want to end this segment on that kind of downer notes. Let's do some other miscellaneous items. How about this one? A Virginia woman, Marcia Fuqua, bought a small painting for $7 at a flea market only to discover it was a Renoir original worth $100,000. That's the good news. The bad news for Fuqua was that she must give the painting back to the Baltimore Museum of Art from which it was stolen back in 1951. And uh, well, here's a great item from Who Really Runs Things, a topic we were discussing a moment ago. Reportedly, Iran's semi-official Fars News Agency reported in January that secret documents stolen by, by National Security Agency leaker Edward Snowden offered, quote, incontrovertible proof, unquote, that the U.S. is in fact being run by a shadow government of space aliens. And we would have to point out to the people of Iran that no, no, that, that's in fact not true. It just seems that way. All right, and here's three more oddball news items. Evidently a South Florida artist apologized for smashing a vase valued at $1 million that was part of a museum exhibit by noted Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei. Maximo Caminero told the Miami Herald last week that he had no right to destroy someone else's art. The vase was one of 16 in an eye installation at the new Perez Art Museum in Miami. Police said Caminero told them he smashed the vase to protest the lack of support for local artists rather than international ones. He was charged with criminal mischief over $1,000, which is a felony. And how about this news from Kazakhstan? According to The Economist, Kazakhstan is not well known around the rest of the world and that the, this aspiring middle-income country is often lumped together with its economically less developed neighbors, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, and is referred to as one of a set of stands. Stan means place of in Persian or settlement in Russian. So on the 6th of this month, so on the 6th of this month, Nursultan Nazarbayev, Kazakhstan's president, suggested the country needed a name change. Perhaps change it to Kazakh Yeli, or Land of the Kazakhs. Nazarbayev cited the example of nearby Mongolia, saying, quote, Foreigners show interest in Mongolia, whose population is just 2 million. But its name does not end in Stan. Noted the economist, straining facts as well as logic because, as they point out, the number of tourists who visit Mongolia each year is only a fraction of the foreigners who travel to Kazakhstan. And so far, the name Kazakh Yeli has not met with much local approval. A more popular alternative is Kazakhia, reminiscent of Mongolia or Malaysia. But to some nationalists, that sounds a little too much like Rosia, the Russian name for Russia. Sniff the economists. In any case, most Kazakhs have more to worry about than the name of their country. The poor quality of health care, the high cost of education, widespread corruption, and the shrinking value of the currency. Finding a solution to those issues might be a better way to burnish the country's image. Well, yes indeed. 
And finally, this news item, which you may have seen, dear listener, is that a zircon crystal embedded in sandstone and found on a sheep ranch in Australia is now felt to be the oldest piece of the earth crust to be discovered. The zircon, described in the journal National Geoscience, is about 4.4 billion years old and is much smaller than a single grain of rice. But apparently some reporter in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel said, the tiny crystal carries an outsized significance. It's evidence that by that point in its history, Earth had gone from a superheated ball of molten rock to a congealed surface, eventually capable of supporting life. Which, you know, he still basically got his tires on the road. But then... Uh, the Journal Sentinel went on to say, By studying how the conditions of life came together on our planet, scientists believe we will learn what to look for in the hunt for evidence of life on other planets. You know, that's some pretty purple prose for one crystal that's now been dated to 4.4 million years of age. At this point, Mr. Millen asks, How do you date a crystal? And I believe, sir, that they use the ratio of uranium to lead, as they do in other dating methods. That's what I thought. <laughs> And of course, in this tiny little dust mite-sized uh, crystal, they're also making claims about the Earth's temperature based on the ratio of oxygen isotopes. The scientists doing this stuff uh, conclude that the temperatures on Earth 4.4 billion years ago would have supported liquid water and therefore, perhaps, perhaps, life. And, uh, well, all I can say is, I hope they did their calibrations correctly. And let's recalibrate this program by taking a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more. Stick around. Mm-hmm. 